Hello everybody, welcome to the ICS podcast. My name is Martin Calver. I'm the marketing director here at ICS Digital and ICS Translate. Today, we're talking about the world of professional employment, um, the gig economy, technology, um, and many other topics besides, I'm sure, with Bertan Batekin, who is founder and chief product officer of AppJobs. So Bertan, welcome. Thank you for uh, having me, Martin. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Um, so we go back a few years um, and have met on various occasions at various industry events, but this is a nice opportunity, I suppose, for us to catch up a little bit as well um, and have a more in-depth conversation. Uh, for those that don't know, what is AppJobs and what, what's your role in the company? Um, yeah, great question to start with. Um, AppJobs is um, a digital ally for gig workers. And I'll come to what gig worker means in a second. Um, but I am one of the co-founders uh, in the company. And um, the people, as we call gig workers, are people who work with the platforms. They deliver your food. They drive you around. Um, they walk your dogs. And they, they can clean your house and do many things that we call gigs. And uh, what people don't know is that these people are not employed. Uh, by the platforms they work with. Um, so they have to fix their own employment. Either they're independent contractors or there are different mechanisms for them, like uh, employer on records. Um, the reason we decided to do all of this stuff is because, um, well, my story goes back all the way to Sweden to 2005 when I, when I moved there and I uh, failed to generate enough income because there was no work uh, actually to pick up. And uh, so it was very struggling and a very hard moment in my life and my career. And uh, the reason my co-founder uh, picked up this is because he was working with Uber as the country manager uh, for a year. So he noticed different problems and then he just presented them to me and it just clicked right away um, because of my background, because of all the other things. And I understand how difficult it is to work in a foreign country and try to make ends meet. So um, we, we decided to start the company in uh, 2017 and uh, it's been a very interesting ride all these six and a half years, I would say. Um, Especially because um, um, there are there are a lot of people who are identifying themselves as gig workers, uh, over a million in Europe today, mm -hmm. um, and um, you know, at the moment we are not able to address all of them. Uh, but we are starting with Poland and Sweden, and with the ambition to obviously um, get to more countries. Um, so uh, what AppJobs does is. Um, we help people find which platform they should work with and then uh, also help them understand how to get activated quickly by the platform because that's also a process. It's almost like doing KYC on your payment provider, yep. to be honest, you have yeah, to yeah. upload docs and do things. And then we also um, help them get access to their earnings really fast, the earnings that they generate on the platform and uh, also try to keep a compliant and um, cost-effective uh, employer on record service. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of these things where if people just want to find a way to get started, to get working, as you say, there's people that are find themselves in different countries, in different situations, and they need some help to navigate how to get started. It's a really good, um, you know, supportive tool to cover off some of those big questions that they have and to, to get moving, really. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's fair to say. And then I think the, the, the actual battle starts for these people when they find the platform because there are a bunch of things to do and it can get very confusing and complicated because mm. uh, the platform's priority is the demand side. They want to get orders or, as we say, um, business. Um, and then the mm -hmm. what we call the supply side is the worker area where people need to make 
income. And uh, so we helped them with a bunch of things, but most importantly is uh, getting activated with the platform so you can start doing gigs and then get your earnings as fast as possible, not wait for the end of the month or the payment cycle of the platform. And do you find that people are typically sticking with one platform or are they like driving with Uber, but also somebody else or delivering with one company, but also delivering with another company? How does, uh, how does it normally work for people? Yeah, so that's the part where gig economy becomes interesting because it's a transactional labor, as we call it. Um, you can work sure. with as many apps as you like. Um, many drivers are using maximum number of apps that they can sign up with because different apps are strong in different uh, client segments. So you can actually get really uh, VIP segment with a certain app and then you can get more like a commuter segment with uh, another app. Even with the delivery, um, depending on the country and the size of your city, you would at least use two apps um, because the, the orders are changing. Some of them are targeting smaller restaurants. Uh, some of them are working with large uh, enterprises like McDonald's and KFC and so on. Um, I guess the only time when people stick to single app is more like... Um, uh, you have to book in advance kind of services like, you know, dog walking or cleaning services because those are, um, you can list in many apps, but the clientele remains the same and people usually stick to one app when they order the service. So you just basically choose the best one in the in the market and stick to it. I mean, that, that level of freedom is something that can be um, exciting, but also intimidating. So I think that's where, you know, app jobs comes in, you know, uh, performing a really good function to help people navigate where to get started. Um, for you personally, like, what does a typical day look like for you? Are you focusing on product? Are you focusing on um, some of the more operational aspects of the business? What, is, what does it look like for you? I think, well, first of all, the typical day starts with a run and a bit of meditation. <laughs> Without that, I can't just get my head together. And then a bit of coffee. Um, but when it comes to the work, um, we start the day with daily meetings. Uh, we're a remote uh, first company. We don't have any offices, on any physical offices. So I, I am a part of a bunch of different daily meetings. Um, and the most interesting one is, for me at least, the all-hands meeting. Where um, uh, We're not a very, very large company, but we're over 20 people. So we need to get everything aligned before everyone starts the day. And we, we ask a typical questions that we ask in that meeting is like, has anyone done anything to move the needle in the last 24 hours? Um, mm -hmm. And then if nobody answers that question, we look at some data, <laughs> uh, if we miss something. And then uh, the next question is, has, is anyone doing anything that will move the needle? And by moving the needle, I mean, um, it's not typical work, right? Because we do a lot of stuff every day, like paying the bills or answering emails, but have we done anything that will improve the business and you know uh, incrementally give more value to the users? And and that's a very very um, healthy level of stress that we injected to the team because um, initially it felt like you're completely naked in front of other people. To be honest, like uh, why are you asking me this mm. question? Why do you want to know if I have I'm doing my job? Uh, you know I'm I'm here. Uh, but then people started to understand, and sometimes there's one minute of silence. Like nobody did anything in the last 24 hours. Nobody will do anything in the next 24 hours because something big is being cooked or whatever. But um, um, yeah, and then of course, like there are scheduled or ad hoc calls or business meetings and stuff like that. But uh, this is the part I love. Um, you know, I start the day with meeting the people, um, not physically, unfortunately, every day, but uh, uh, it gives me um, the level of confidence that we're all working on the same things and quite aligned. 
I mean, it seems like that's something that um, other uh, founders can can learn from as well about how they they might want to structure their communications or build their day. What what do you like most about your um, I guess build? What do you like most about building the company? I guess. I guess the uh, I could have different answers to that, but what I like most most is the honesty and transparency, because. Um, being a startup gives us certain luxuries that other people think are kind of unlimited or endless. But the truth is you have limited time and money and uh, you have to test things out and figure out where you can fail as fast as possible to just cross that out from the list because there are a lot of land to cover. And um, with the level of transparency and honesty, we are able to focus on the right things and we don't just waste our time trying to, you know, do nice stuff just for the sake of doing it. Um, that, that's what I really like. I think the team is quite seasoned on that. Um, we have mm-hmm. no um, tolerance for, um, you know, uh, I'll just name the word. We have no tolerance for bullshit kind mm. of culture. So I really like that. Um, that's the part I enjoy most. I mean, I guess that's something also you can um, build into your life as an entrepreneur. You can decide what you're interested in in tolerating and what you're not interested in tolerating and try and build uh, your plan around that. So I mean, how would you describe your own journey as an entrepreneur? So you, you mentioned you know, some early struggles that might give you a bit of understanding and empathy for the gig economy. Um, you know, when you think about your journey as an entrepreneur in general, like what has came true that you planned for? Um, what was unexpected that surprised you? I will say nothing I planned ever came through and everything was unexpected. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and the reason I say this is, um, I mean, we, we have a startup culture in the last 10, 10 years. I think it became very popular sort of among especially young people to work in a startup. And everyone imagines getting a cool laptop, a beanbag to sit on and some free snacks and Zoom calls and so on, uh, stuff like that. And, and obviously, like we have also fell into the trap for a while um what i can tell you is um what what changed is uh what what changed the game and started moving the needle is hustling and um essentially digital startups are um always making the mistake that because you have technology computers internet and um it feels like you don't have to do that but the truth is the customer is a human being at the end of the day and they have needs and uh, you need to understand those needs and you have to go out there and hustle and, you know, do stuff that you um, might not really like doing. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm talking about stuff like um, driving people around as a taxi driver, for example, is something I never imagined I would do. Or delivering people's food and getting super stressed about being delayed and mm-hmm. arguing at the restaurant that the meal was cold before I got it. I mean, like there are all these little details that we have never thought about. We thought that, you know, these are digital companies. How difficult can it be? We know how to program. We know how to do digital marketing. But those things are coming later. Like first, you need to figure out what the white space is. And that's something I learned um, as the most valuable lesson, I would say. Um, I, I went out there and did things that I would normally not do to understand and in, first of all, to impersonate the end user and then to understand what their real pain points are. Um, and then started building solutions based on that knowledge. And um, uh, I guess you can also call it getting on the ground. And many people are feeling very uncomfortable with that. Uh, we also did uh, for a long time. Mm-hmm. But then when you see the end result, uh, you know, the product you built is used by thousands of people and they are actually giving you kudos and 
you know, five star reviews and that sort of thing. And you can also see that it solves their problem. It makes them, it, it makes their life easier or their earnings bigger. And these are people who live hand to mouth in many countries. So that's absolutely um, the satisfaction that you would not get from anywhere else. At least people like me would probably not get uh, from anywhere else. Um, yeah. may, maybe one last thing to add is um, I have realized that it's harder work than I plan. And whenever you make some projections on the numbers or anything similar to that, it's always taking at least two times more uh, of whatever that is. That's mm -hmm. what I also learned. Uh, but I also learned that um, the freedom and the thrill that you feel um, by working like this is is unmatched. Um, it's, it's a completely different way of working, solving problems that nobody knows even exists. Uh, it's, it's kind of a different thing. I almost um, feel like those of you who play computer games would understand that um, there is this fog of war where you don't really know what's out there, uh, but you're starting from mm -hmm. a tiny little part of the screen. I always feel like being a startup uh, founder is like that. Like you have to uncover the map. And there can be guys out there who have twice the army or whatever game you're playing, strategy game or whatever. So that's really that. Like you have to plan, but you have to be prepared for the worst uh, all the time. And that level of stress is constant. Well, I mean, it's one of these things where I think that metaphor is a particularly good one because you don't necessarily know what you're going to uncover. Sometimes you'll uncover something good. Sometimes you'll uncover something challenging. But as you say, the, the kudos you get for solving a problem that nobody else was tackling, that, that seems to be pretty special, especially as you say, the type of customer audiences that you've got where it's a real difference you can make to people's financial well-being, their stress levels, that type of thing. Um but I mean, as you go along, you also acquire, um, you know, team members, support, resilience. Um, so when you're looking at how you've built the company up with your um, colleagues, uh, what would you say are the most important parts of building a team that is high performing? And what other, um, I guess, what other teams were, did you prioritize? Was it technical? Was it marketing? Was it something else? Like what, what? Um, colleagues have been most important to the growth of the company or which colleagues I should say I, I think it starts with let, let me start with the, the team and then the units uh, later because that um, mm -hmm. depends on the phase of the company um, when we tried to get team members um, we made a mistake uh, initially to hire people based on titles and um, I think that that's the biggest mistake anyone would make hiring people based on what their mm -hmm. experience is only. Um, I think what's important building high performance team is to find people with as high level of clarity and as high level of energy as you can get. Because energy is super important in a startup. You need to wake up and do things. It's completely unknown territory and that makes some people already super stressed. So you need to get people with high levels of energy so that they can actually share that when other people are low on energy and you can just basically keep pushing each other forward. Um, and then the clarity is important because time is limited, funds are limited, we can't waste anything. So um, if the skills are not there, these two can compensate for, uh, for that, um, especially on the early stage. Because early stage requires hustling and, um, and clarity helps, energy definitely helps. Now, um, also important is um, founders need to give people a lot of space. 
because you if, if you want people to be accountable you need to empower them uh, they need to feel completely um free to make mistakes and then you, they need to document those mistakes mm-hmm. and make sure other people learn from them if you just expect people to do great stuff you need to tolerate the bad stuff first and the bad stuff comes front loaded and you learn from it your organization learns from it so that's great and then the more you encourage people to to work like that the more you realize that you are actually making yourself redundant and that's great because uh, the worst organizations are completely run by founders that's a very stressful environment for the founder you usually end up in a burnout very quickly um when it comes to what type of uh, units i think on the early stage um what's very very important is um marketing minded people because uh, the the tech team needs to come a little bit later you don't need that many developers or software development i mean I, of course i'm talking about today's reality right not 10 years ago 10 years ago tech was super sure expensive and hard to get um, but but nowadays i mean with the level of ai and also cheap SaaS tools out there you can actually construct your business with a bunch of automations and um, really focus on accessing the user and getting test cases um, talking to people hustling understanding very quickly with those closed uh, feedback loops and then when you actually find some pocket of a product that can be scaled then you remove all the duct tape and all that uh, silly version and you actually build technology and automation on top of that and you start scaling that. Um, that's what people want. Um, if you front load your tech, um, you, you will burn lots of cash. We have made that mistake. You're going to have an amazing app or a great product, but nobody will use it. And ch- making changes will cost you a lot of money and time. So I, I think that initially not that many developers. If one of the founders is a software engineer, is great because then you don't need to hire any developers. Uh, but definitely marketing... Mm, yeah. um, hustlers yeah i mean that's one thing because you can't teach motivation that's what they always say right and i think there is um i mean sometimes people call it like a soft skill but the point about clarity is a really important one being able to see the situation and communicate that to others in a way that also motivates and doesn't demotivate that seems to be crucial at a time when you know you're, you're looking to build some difference build capacity um, so I think there's lots in your answer there that people will find familiar. People who have, um, you know, built technological solutions in different industries. Um, but yeah, the, the human factor can't be neglected, that's for sure. Um, but but coming back to the product point, you know, what methods have you used to develop the product? So you mentioned, I guess, your own experience and testing things out and trying to empathize with, um, you know, end users. What what other forms of data have informed product development, uh, like customer feedback, that type of thing? Yeah, I mean, um, like I said, early stage, I think already clarified. Um, but once you have something that starts working, you need to get quantitative and qualitative research. And you can actually get support from the, uh, different professionals for that, or you can even mm-hmm. get an agency to help you. Um, the key point is you need to you need to specify exactly what you need, because people out there won't do your job for you. Um, So you need to be quite strict about, um, okay, so I need feedback on this and this and this. Um, There are tools you can use uh, for user research. There are um, many, many software companies out there that 
build amazing products um, and you can utilize them or you can even use like type forms and spreadsheets just basically mm-hmm. ask people questions one one thing to watch out for is that um, people usually tell you what you want to hear. Uh, Unfortunately, that's the case. So you need to know how to ask the questions. Um, And that took a bit of time to learn. That's why I always recommend if you want to use your research and if you're you're sure about your product, then you can actually go to an expert and try to explain the situation or an agency or a a company that's specialized for doing this. Um, We did a bit of all of that. Uh, we also had an in-house uh, user researcher. Um, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't, because mm-hmm. sometimes people also want to double down on their vertical skills, and that might um, also be um, an overkill. Uh, but in general, I would suggest that um, once your product reaches a certain use base and a certain scale, try to get some help, uh, external help, and define what you want, and you will get good results on the on the quantitative part, especially. Well, I mean, I think defining what you want is a really big part. And it's something where I think sometimes, you know, big picture, quote, visionary founders can lose track because they might know what the big idea is, but they're not able to explain the big idea to other people, especially when the product is still in development or still evolving and people can't see for themselves. I think that's where, you know, that clarity that you mentioned earlier, that that communication really helps so that you're getting as much support as you can because... You know, people will typically want to help, but sometimes um, you need to help them to help you, I suppose. Um, so you mentioned marketing before. So what, what kind of methodologies have been most important for user acquisition, I guess, you know, for, for workers and gig, gig economy um, professionals, but then also the companies themselves to get get the, the different platforms to be featured on, on the, 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 the app? What has been the, the main thing for you? I mean, uh, f- from the acquisition perspective, uh, we're in a unique position because we are the mid-layer. Um, so we piggyback mm-hmm. a lot on the actual marketing of the, the, the apps, the, the platforms, which is, you know, the, 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 the cream of the business, as they call it, uh, because it's free leads uh, for us. We just get them and we activate sure. them, but the competition is huge. Uh, so where we find actual acquisition value is our PPC campaigns, uh, and we are... I would say this is what we've been doing for six years. Uh, we do a lot of media buying um, on different stages of the funnel. Um, mm-hmm. And um, and we have also used different um, boards, different... Obviously, there's, um, you know, very mainstream products like Google and um, Meta and, and so on. Uh, I'm not sure if it's called Meta. Uh, maybe they changed the name. Uh, it used to be Facebook, Instagram, you know, that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so they keep, they have a tendency to change their name every five years. Um then, uh, then you also have the local resources to tap. And um, to be honest, this is a full-time engagement. And you can also you can also work with an agency that you trust because um, sometimes you don't want to spend all your time specializing in everything. You just want to work on your product and outsource the marketing part completely to people who are doing it much better. Um, especially if you want a, a high volume of traffic, you need to be really good at um, search engine optimization. And there we also got some help um, externally mm-hmm. um, because it involves a lot of different animals, uh, sorry, elements, um, as you as you know as well, Martin. So you know, you need to do your link building, you need to do your uh, tech uh, stuff correctly and then um, all the indexation and like, yeah, it's, it's, it's a total thing on its own. Um, what we were really surprised about though is... Um, 
and that goes back to clarity. Um, the referral program. We we invested a lot of time and mm-hmm. energy on the referral program. Um, we thought that gig workers would refer other gig workers if you pay them um, slightly less, but very nicely uh, compared to what we pay for normal user acquisition. Um, and they, they don't. <laughs> Interestingly mm. enough, they don't. And uh, I mean, some do, but the scale is very small compared to what we estimated. And we realized after talking to people more and more, um, they have admitted that, look, I mean, the, the, the demand is limited. So by referring other people to the same boat, I'm restricting my own, um, uh, you know, uh, ability in a way because the mm-hmm. number of orders won't increase when more people enter the economy. So, to be honest, we haven't thought about that because uh, the the supply is limited. It's, it's uh, correct uh, on on the demand side. Sorry, and when the orders are limited, the number of workers increasing makes less orders or fewer orders per worker. So that didn't work. Um, but then um, we have also realized that uh, the branding matters a lot um people because what we do is essentially we're a bank uh for people uh we're their employer on record so we get their earnings and then we process those earnings for taxes and also other deductions that need to be made towards the government or to other uh, authorities and then we pay their net salary so that's one of the parts of the product that is essential and for people to do that it's they have to trust you they have to see you for a while mm-hmm. um so we have done some branding investments as well. We have organized, um, uh, like we're doing now, we have organized podcasts, uh, um, video logs, and uh, also meetings to clarify different situations to people. We have invested on the brand value a lot as the also the uh, most compliant uh, and um, cost-effective and fastest-paying company in the market. So all of that combined um, brings our strategy to this level. There are still a lot of things we need to fix, um, obviously. Like, uh, I have to admit, we still don't have a very, very good social media strategy, which is another area where you have to be really good at, if you, especially if you have a business-to-consumer product. Mm-hmm. Um, but those um, are the gains and the surprises, I would say. Referral was the biggest surprise for us. And um, the success of, uh, success of PPC was... Um, for me, it was a little bit surprising as well. I thought it would be a lot more competitive, but uh, so far, so good. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting when theory like encounters the real world, um, and then you get you get a correction pretty quickly. You'll find out very fast what is uh, going to work and scale, and what isn't. Um, so yeah, I think that's also uh, important to bear in mind and to be, I guess entrepreneurs should be kind of kind to themselves in a way because you cannot possibly think of every eventuality and predict how everything's going to go but if you can adapt and pivot based on the data that you get then you know that's that's you know going to be a positive situation and yeah your point about trust is really important and that's something that comes out a lot in many of the podcasts that we do because we tend to talk to about heavily competitive industries often industries where there isn't a physical product that people can look at and investigate. Um, when you're selling an invisible product, especially when people's money is concerned, you've got to build that trust. So yeah, I, th- I take the point about brand and you know the importance of just being present and for your, the product to back up the promise as well. That's a really big part of it as well. Um, when you look at other um, like technology platforms or startups, are there any that you take a lot of inspiration from even in other industries any that you wish you had created 
Uh, one product I need to mention explicitly is definitely Uber app. Um, not only the app that most people use to order, but the actual courier and driver app. I mean, I think Uber is doing a phenomenal job um, when it comes to how it interacts, tracks, and intelligently understands the 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 worker. Um, I'm actually quite fond of their app um, from many different angles. Um, so I think that they are they're probably one of the best uh, in the world when it comes to um, this this aspect. Uh, there is another app because I, I like running and um, I, I met uh, Strava many many years ago uh, as a freemium app. Um, I haven't paid for a very long time and they have still let me use the app. I'm very grateful. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm paying back. Uh, I, I subscribed this year. Um, but I mean, the, what I like is the way they um, created a community out of people who never meet each other uh, through a shared event. Um, I, I don't know any of the people who are contributing into making this product better, but I know that they're out there. They're running probably at the same time because there are some leaderboards and different fun activities. Never met anyone using Strava so far after seven years, but uh, I really like the features that are built based on the individual, but in a community um, uh, in mind. And I want to bring that also to, to, to AppJobs as the main person responsible for product development. So um, I wish I actually created Strava, I have to say. Uh, that's something that I would have liked uh, a lot. Um, there are other apps from our industry and there are other industries that I've worked in. Um, many, many different apps, but I think these two really stand out for me. I mean, Strava is a very interesting one because, again, if you were to look at it purely intellectually, you might think from for most people running is a solitary activity, but it just goes to show there is that desire for community connection, comparison, and yeah, hopefully that is also the case with um, the, the gig, gig economy workers as well. They might want to, they might not want to welcome new competition to, if there's only a static number of orders, um, but they probably do want some kind of solidarity, some kind of empathy, a feeling of being part of something else. And as you said right up front, you know, it is really notable how important gig economy workers are to, you know, getting fed, you know, maintaining buildings, maintaining cleanliness, you know, getting us around, you know, transport. It's a huge part of modern life. So, yeah, it's quite right that that community aspect is uh, looked into as well. Um, I want, I, what do you think, speaking of the gig economy, like, what do you think is the future? Is it going to be, um, you know, more normalized for other types of role? Uh, how do you think the, the gig economy is going to evolve? And like, what, what, what are your thoughts on the future of work more generally? We actually gave this a lot of thought um, along these six years. Um, Alok is usually a much better speaker than me, but... Uh, I tend to listen to him a lot when he also shares his uh, opinions. So I might be echoing a few. Um, But I mean, in a simple answer, I think two things will happen. Uh, For sure, there will be more uh, serious consolidation phase. Uh, There will be fewer players, I think, um, especially because of economic reality. A lot of these companies were backed up by um, private or equity uh, or uh, venture capital funds, and um, that money has dried up. So I think what will happen now is, uh, um, which has started already last year, is um, companies will merge and they will create uh, what we call in the industry super apps. Um, Uber is already Mm -hmm. one. 
um, they they have acquired a lot of companies already. They have uh, they have done a phenomenal job in putting a lot of different products into a single one. Um, at the same time, um, the 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 second thing that needs to happen is it it needs to go a bit wider as well. Um, I think uh, delivery and driving are the most popular categories because of the 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 width of those segments. But there are um, there are already a lot of people who are gig workers. They just don't know it. Like um, most of the medical uh, industry workers are already working this model. Um, many of the on-demand um, professionals are working this model. I mean, uh, Fiverr is out there for many years. Uh, Freelance.com, I think, is out there for more than 10 years as well. These people are doing gigs. Uh, it's just that the, the, the nature of the gig takes a couple of days or sometimes a week or a month. But it is a gig. You have to start something and deliver it and get paid for it. Um, these are a little bit more planned than just ordering random things and delivering them to someone's house. But they are all going to be streamlined with the same technology. Mm -hmm. I think that um, I think that um, we need to look a little bit towards Asia uh, to understand where the future of work uh, will land. Let's say, I guess. Um, the regulation is something uh, that I wanted to mention. The second thing, Europe seems to be, uh, and when I say Europe, I still count UK. Uh, I love UK. <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, my understanding of Europe is continental Europe plus UK. And, and we still tend to look at a little bit too much on uh, post-industrial revolution standards that were set more than 100 years ago. But I think that in Asia and um, in the States and parts of Latin America, even actually parts of Africa, people are embracing the transactional organization of supply-demand um, nature in, uh, in labor, uh, which is stressful uh, because it, the security on paper, at least, is, is less. But the, the truth is the mechanisms that to, to make it more secure are also evolving as private companies like income protection uh, businesses mm -hmm. are emerging. Um, um, also, the different type of um, security measures that the state covers in Europe are emerging as private companies, and they are sometimes even cheaper. So you can actually pay them privately and choose different plans and make your own um, own life the way you want to design it. So this is a very, very um, sensitive topic for a lot of people. But I think um, if people can work, if they are able to work, then they should be given the option to test this out. And then based on that experience, some people don't want to go back to um, a, a completely state-controlled, pre-designed mechanism. And some people are fine with that. So I think that uh, what I think the future of work will look like is there will be choices for people a lot more than today. Um, what we accept as normal today, I don't think that it will stay that way. Um, and people will design their own um, mechanisms, uh, as I mentioned before and not just um, get fit in one box or the other. There will be probably 20 different boxes to, to choose from. Well, I mean, that, this, this gets into some really, really big topics. It gets into things around, you know, individual liberty, what is society, you know, what's the role of the state. Um, yeah. Far too many big topics for us to handle in, a, in any yes. kind of clever way today. But yeah, lots of food for thought there. And yeah, I think certainly depending on how these trends develop or how the trends roll back, there will be um, opportunities for uh, entrepreneurs, technology companies, marketers, 
uh, strategists, all sorts of people. So yeah, maybe that's good food for thought for our listeners to think where they might fit into these uh, potential trends and where the world might be going. Um, so we've talked about um, the, the future of work. We've talked about the nature of the gig economy, um, what gig workers want from a supportive solution, um, all this type of stuff. I think you know, to, to kind of finish up, it'd be really good to hear what you think um, is next for app jobs in particular. Uh, wh- where is the product going? Uh, what are your plans for the future? Um, so um, it's definitely geographical expansion um, mm-hmm. that's in the in the plans for a while. Um, we chose Poland and Sweden uh, because one is the kind of gateway for us for the Nordics. Uh, Northern Europe and uh, one is for the Central Eastern European um, um, part of the world, and we want to we want to start the expansion. Uh, but at the same time, we also want to make sure that we have a three hundred sixty degree solution for the gig workers, meaning you know we can actually, um, as I mentioned before, we want to explain them which apps they should work with and then activate them very quickly, and then also equip them. Because um, in this type of economy, you have to find your stuff. Nobody actually gives them to you. Um, there mm-hmm. might be some pre-selected packages, like you know your gear and stuff. But we we want to bring those things at a very very affordable price or in different deals, so that you know people don't have to pay upfront. Um, and we want to improve our products' digital capabilities. So we are already uh, working on um, I- integrating an AI customer support uh, agent to our team. And uh, it's 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 a very interesting um, thing to discuss because customer support is a, a very very important part of our business. People are very nervous when they trust you with their money. It's actually even more than a bank, I would say. I don't think mm-hmm. that many people are contacting their bank as they contact their employer on record. Um, yeah. But uh, using AI definitely helps because um, doing the same thing over and over, checking the database, answering the person back. This is the stuff that AI, I think, is very, very useful. Um, if it has the access to certain database tables and it identifies which user is talking to, I think the the, the service that we can provide to our um, workers can be faster, more reliable, and more accurate, and most importantly, twenty four seven. So that's the next step for us. Um, both um, both written and 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 at some point also spoken support through AI. I mean, that's an interesting one because it combines a lot of important elements like the trust factor. So like being available to people, because if there's something that, you know, will annoy or worry a customer of any type, it's not being able to talk to somebody about something related to their money. It's the, you know, the efficiency aspect of this. And then the, I guess the, you know, one of the plus points of AI is the ability to detect patterns and to... Uh, refine a consistent type of service delivery and a consistent messaging. So yeah, having that on an always-on basis hopefully will um, be something that will be of use to actual users and gig economy workers and also help grow the the app in different directions. So, Bertrand, we've talked about so many different topics. I need to thank you very much for being on the podcast. Um, Lots of food for thought about the nature of entrepreneurship, how to spot an opportunity, importance of empathizing with your users, the type of data you can bring on, uh, the traits you might want to look for in a team, so the clarity aspect, the motivation aspect. Um, We've talked about the future of work and all sorts of other topics that I've probably forgotten right this second. But yeah, thanks very much for being on the podcast, Bertrand. It's been my pleasure and yeah, we appreciate it a lot. 
Thank you. Thank you, Martin. It's great uh, also connecting after all these years and uh, being a part of this. Thanks for inviting me. It's our pleasure. And thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll catch you next time.